It's called the tension between the ideal on the one hand and the real on the other. St. Paul knew something about this in Romans chapter 7. One of the translations of Romans chapter 7 says it this way, Yeah, I know I'm full of myself. What I don't understand about myself is I decide one way, but then I act another. Doing things I know that are wrong and not doing the things I know perfectly well are right. Today we begin a series about family life, and this morning specifically about how so often we know the ideal but struggle with the real. And we find the tension between the two very, very troubling, sometimes almost impossible. When it comes to family... Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, and a top-flight communicator, wrote it this way. When the ideal is hard to attain, it's tempting to just lower the bar and redefine what is good. This can be especially true when it comes to God's teaching about family, which many of us have already fallen short of. And yet, there is great value in striving for the ideal, even when our reality falls short. Andy Stanley said that broadly about family, and and I believe it to be true. This morning I want to just focus on one part of family, that is marriage, with the idea that what we learn from Paul and others about marriage really does bleed over and spill over into other parts of our family relationships and really other relationships in our life as well. We could start, we could begin with setting the table, setting the context in which St. Paul and Jesus themselves lived and worked and did their ministry. We could, for example, dive into the role of women in marriage and the whole idea of marriage generally in the Hebrew culture, in the Greek culture, and in the Roman culture, but we'd be here a couple of hours, and that's not why we're here this morning. That said, it's still helpful to understand from the context of the Jewish world, from the context of the Greek world and the Roman world, It's instructive to hear again how bold, how epoch-making, how daring the words of St. Paul and Jesus were in their context. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, there are several different principles that are lined out with regard to marriage and also to the role of women in marriage. For example, and Proverbs chapter 31, there's a wonderful description of a, of a woman who's a wife and a homemaker, and it just is, is just laudatory, it's just great stuff, and we drag that out on Mother's Day quite often, Psalm 30, uh, Proverbs 31. In another passage, just a little bit earlier, Proverbs chapter, chapter 2, we read how as a marriage develops, a husband and a wife really become companions on the road to another life together going into their old age. But those are glimpses, those are snippets, those are some passages. For the most part, the Old Testament does not live up to the ideal. In fact, there are good students of the Bible who say that in the Old Testament, there's only one narrative, there's only one example, there's only one story of a fairly healthy, godly life. And that's the story, and that's the narrative of Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. As I mentioned in a message here a couple months ago, 
when it comes to the Old Testament and when it comes to the teachings of the family of Old Testament, on the family in the Old Testament, and when it comes to how people lived in the Old Testament, <laughs> the Old Testament puts the fun back in dysfunctional when it comes to family. They really did. Most of them are pretty messed up. Not the kind of examples that we aspire to or we want to follow. In the Jewish tradition, a man could simply say to his wife three times, I divorce you. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. That was that. There were some rabbis who would say, well, you can only do that for unfaithfulness, infidelity. But there were other rabbis who would say, yeah, you can do it for unfaithfulness. You can also do that if your wife puts too much salt in the soup. That's all you need to do. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Story done. The Roman and the Greek world weren't much better. Not a huge improvement. The husband, the father, really held all the cards. To change metaphors here, the husband, the father, really held a big bucket of his possessions. And in his possessions, there would be his real estate and his buildings and his bank accounts and his slaves and his wife and his children because they were considered his property. And for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, he could do pretty much what he wanted with them. He had a lot of freedom as to what he could do with all his property. If things didn't please a Roman father, a Roman husband, he could just send his wife packing and send her back to her father. If a child was born handicapped, female, or just one more mouth too much to feed, that father could take that infant baby child to a remote place and just expose it, put it on a rock, put it in a swamp, wherever. Now, if by chance somebody came along and took pity on that child, cared for that child, loved that child, maybe even adopted that child, fine and well. If not, again, the father held all the cards, almost all of them. If adult children didn't live up to his expectations, even as they were adults themselves, his children, and had families of their own, he could just adopt another child right into the family and give that adopted child late in, late in life the whole estate. It's an amazing thing. Is this painting a thousand years of ancient history with too broad a brush? Well, of course it is. But broadly speaking, that's about what happened in the ancient world. About as good a description of how women fared in the ancient world is part of a speech from Thucydides in ancient Greece, that Greek historian of the ancient world in Greece. Thucydides in his speech said that the glory of a woman is that she is not spoken of, whether in praise or blame. She was important. But if she really wanted to have some special attention, well, the attention would come, the glory would come, if we just didn't speak about her, whether for good or for bad. Marriages were mainly business transactions to increase a family's social status and maybe some security involved. 
with women being not much more than a chip in the bargaining process. They are around, but not by much. Do you remember the, the movie Chicago of a couple of decades ago? Pretty good flick. It won some awards even because of the music in it and so on. In the movie, if you recall, Roxy Hart was the, the main figure, one of the two main figures in the whole movie. Roxy Hart was married to her husband, Amos. Roxy goes off and lives the high life, including being unfaithful to Amos. There's a point where Amos starts, well, he starts getting concerned, and, and he starts realizing that he's almost completely marginalized from Roxy's life. And then there's a great song that Amos sings in the movie Chicago. The song is called Mr. Cellophane. And Amos says, Mr. Cellophane should be my name. You can look right through me. And then he sings that as a refrain. No one notices him. Again, it's far too general. But that's about where women were in Jesus' day. Quiet. The best thing you can do with women is not to speak too highly of them and praise them, nor to speak too harshly of them. If you don't speak of them at all, that's their glory. Into this context come Jesus and St. Paul with some startling, revolutionary, bold, mind-boggling ideas and teachings. There was that day when Jesus takes a child and reaches down, puts that child on his lap, and says to his disciples and those around him, see this child? It's what the kingdom of God is like. And the disciples were going, wait, what? Because that was so bold and so new. And then Paul takes the truths about Jesus and his teachings, his teachings about children and, and women and marginalized women, and he gives them detail and definition. We read part of that in our first lesson this morning. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Husbands, love your wives as much as you love yourself. So submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Children, listen to your parents. That's the ideal. Jesus took the role of children and women and put them in marriage and family and elevated them far above what was the case in the culture of Old Testament Judaism or in Greek and Roman culture. This was something dramatic. It placed marriage and women in a whole new perspective. That's the ideal. And as Andy Stanley said, that's the ideal which even today as Christians we fall short of. I can't speak to all marriages, of course, and we all see marriages through the lenses of our own experience and perspective. But I've seen how often it works out in marriages this way. <clears throat> we meet someone. We become attracted. We fall in lust, as we often say, right? Yeah. We marry. In the beginning, we think about all we need to live happily is air and love, and that's just about it. It's not exactly the Garden of Eden, but you kind of get a glimpse of it. And then things change, and our expectations about marriage and family come into contact and sometimes into crash with reality. 
folks, why do we think that neurotic, selfish, immature people should become angels when they marry and fall in love? But we do, and they do. That's how it happens. When reality sets in, particularly in a marriage relationship, it often happens that things change. And here's sometimes how it goes in three steps. First, you discover how selfish this wonderful person you call spouse really is. Number two, you discover that your spouse thinks the same thing about you and tells you about it. And number three, you acknowledge your selfishness, kind of, sort of, but then you conclude that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. And then we're off. And then we're off. Now, if reality becomes disillusionment and things go south in the relationship, we change how we treat each other, we change even how we treat our marriage. There's an, outspoken, there's an unspoken agreement that there are some things that are just off limits we don't even talk about. There are things that, that you, you don't like about your spouse and there are things that your spouse doesn't like about you, but, but you agree just to keep things smoothed over, not to mention them. Why bother? Neither of the other changes and you settle into a kind of a negotiated ceasefire. We might look happily married, we might act happily married, but then we get to that photo op on our 40th wedding anniversary and that kiss looks pretty awkward and forced, right? Seems weird, seems weird. That's when the reality loses sight of the ideal. In fact, in many marriages, finally we just do away with the ideal altogether. It's like this. Suppose there's an Algebra 2 class, algebra two class in high school. And there's a class sitting there, and the teacher decides to challenge the class with a problem. And so the teacher goes over to a chalkboard and, and writes a complicated question, a challenge, a problem on the chalkboard and says, I'm going to stand by for a little bit, and then I'm going, I want you to, to noodle on that problem and, and see if you can solve it. And, and the, the whole class just starts... Tr- talking about it and gets frustrated and more frustrated. And after about two minutes, they just say, teacher, we can't do this. We don't know how to solve this. Until a young man sitting in the second row stands up, walks over to the chalkboard, takes an eraser, and just erases everything on the board. Problem solved, right? Isn't that something that that's how we conduct ourselves in marriage relationship as well, unfortunately? We simply no longer deal with the ideal. Or we can go with Jesus and St. Paul. The alternative to this truth marriage is to keep the ideal in front of us while we resolve to improve the reality in our relationship. It's my observation that marriages don't often lose the spark just like that in an instant. Many marriages struggle not with explosion but through erosion. Things just start happening and happening and happening and we don't deal with them and then over time there's an erosion of the marriage blessing and the marriage covenant. And then we come to believe 
that good things should come our way even though we're not putting any effort into the relationship. I've heard it said as well, and I think it is true. Many marriages struggle not because they are bad, but because they are good. Because when our marriage is good, we become complacent. We become lazy. We coast. To make any changes to improve our marriage relationship, well, gosh, that's just too much effort. Too much effort to learn how to deal with conflict in a good way. It's too much effort, too much work to agree on a budget and a spending plan. It's just too awkward to discuss our intimate relationship. Too much hassle to deal with bitterness. Too sensitive to deal with anger issues. Too much of this, too much of that. And in the meantime, we just don't address concerns of others. And yet again, we believe that good things should come our way without our having to put forth any effort. To move the real closer to the ideal takes some effort, whether it's family, children, parents, marriages. I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that within the context of marriage and family and children and parents, it's kind of like planting a garden, planting a garden. Most of our life is not about huge decisions and epic changes in our marriage and our family. Those come along, but very seldom, four or five, maybe half a dozen times in our entire life and in our entire married life. Most of the life that we have, most of our relationships, is made up of thousands of little decisions in the routine of daily life. Saying yes to one thing, saying no to another. These go unnoticed, but they build up and they plant the garden. Every day we, see, we plant seeds of actions and words. Those seeds grow up and they change the character of our life so that when these big epic things of decision come our way, our garden of love and action helps us meet the day, helps us make those life decisions so that they are manageable. And most of all, and here's the hard part. This means being honest enough with ourselves to say, I am going to treat my self-centeredness as the main challenge in our marriage. That may be true of child-rearing. That may be true of dealing with our parents. It may be true of other relationships. Being honest enough to say, I'm going to deal, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main challenge in our marriage. You see, we want, when we start in marriage, that our spouses should love us as much as we love ourselves. And friends, at times we need to be told that we need to stop making excuses for our selfishness. And we should do that regardless of what our spouse is doing or not doing. Self-centeredness and selfishness is the well, it's one of those parts of marriage that just really sucks the life out of marriage and it needs to be addressed. We live in the world of Jesus and St. Paul, not of the Old Testament, not of ancient Greece, not of ancient Rome. We live in their ideals. Marriages thrive when we realize that the only person we can control is ourselves. And friends, when things get crazy... Your spouse is not the only sinner in the room. 
We believe that to be true. Jesus and then St. Paul set out the ideal. The great bulk of what St. Paul said makes a lot of sense, and it rings true and is so very helpful to our relationships. There are some things that St. Paul says today that I just can't make work. I don't know why he said them. Maybe I don't, I'm not smart enough. And, and I wish sometimes there are a few things that he might have said differently. But taking the largest perspective, what Jesus and St. Paul said is the ideal. And it works. What Paul said about marriage, for me, is encapsulated in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. <laughs> submit, Right? That's a word that's, that kind of sticks in our 21st century craw, right? With our concerns about gender roles and personal respect and identity, all of which are absolutely valid. And we have to admit that in the history of the Christian church, wives submit to your husbands has been abused and misused in ways that have been shameful and regrettable and harmful. And yet there's value in what St. Paul said. Let me explain. When Paul used the word submit in talking about marriage relationships, yes, he said submit to your husband's wives, but he also said submit to one another out of love. When Paul wrote that, when he said that, he was using a term from the military that people would have understand just like that. I've never served in the military I suspect some of you have. But one of the things you learn when you serve in the military is that when you join a military, you voluntarily give up some things. In fact, you lose some things. You lose a decision about when you're going to go on leave, on vacation. You lose your idea about what time you're going to get up, at least in boot camp. You lose the idea about what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat. Again, particularly in boot camp in the first few months. There's a reason for the military doing that. There's a sense that when you buy into another relationship, another institution, you give up some rights. So when Paul said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the people then would have understood that. They would have understood that when you enter the realm of marriage, you simply give up the right to make decisions unilaterally. You voluntarily surrender some of your independence. Is that true of marriage? It's not primarily how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone else. How much of what you are and who you are are you willing to invest in your marriage? How much of your precious time, how much of your precious resources, how much of your emotion are you willing to invest in a relationship between husband and wife and parents and children and extended siblings? How much are you willing to invest for the sake of Christ? in a relationship that's going to move forward in a better way. If all of this sounds impossible, and if you're thinking, yeah, right, if I'm going to live up to these ideals of Jesus and St. Paul, if I try to do that, 
<laughs> I'm sunk. Game over. I know my faults better than anyone else. It ain't happening. There's something we need to hear also about Jesus' teaching, and it is this. We need to hear that while Jesus taught an ideal, he never condemned those who deal and fail short, who deal with the reality and fail short. There are men here over the age of 18 and boys younger than 18. Do you remember when Jesus said something like this? Any male who looks at another woman with lust in his heart commits adultery with her? You know what Jesus did? He just made adulterers about, about everybody here sitting this morning who's a male over 18, right? Every one of us. And many boys younger than 18. But he didn't condemn people for that. It didn't condemn us when we fall short. There's always forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't look down on us and the people around the cross, and figuratively us included in there. And he didn't die for our sins because he found us to be beautiful and lovely and wonderful and winsome and all that sort of stuff. When Jesus looked down on the cross, also to you and to me, he looked down on us so that he, forgiving our sins, would make us become wonderful and holy and pleasing to the Trinity. As the standards rose higher, the grace became deeper. The ideal and the real. Again, Andy Stanley. Are we willing to embrace an idea that may never be a reality in our current family? Or will we be tempted to lose sight of the ideals so that we feel better about where we actually are? We do not have permission. We do not have the luxury. We do not have the status to remove the tension. The ideal and the real. With the hope that over time, out of reverence for Christ, we can move that real closer to the ideal in our marriage, in our family, and other relationships as well. Let me close on this note. As Christians, we hope for, we long for, the day in eternity when the ideal and the real will be brought back together. When things are as they ought to be once again. Pastor and writer Tim Keller wrote the wrote the following about being in a family and a marriage, and he describes this longing for eternity when the ideal and the real come together. Tim Keller wrote this. Here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what, glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and I will say, I always knew you could be like that. I got glimpses of it on earth. But now, look at you. Look at you. For the ideal, yes, 
for the ideal and for forgiveness for the real and, and for the hope that we can move the real closer to the ideal. For all the blessings God gives us in marriage and family and for the blessings he gives us this wonderful, beautiful autumn day. For this and so much more. This morning we say thanks, thanks, and thanks be to God. Amen. We continue now.